0: See your smiling face or touch your hand If just once more I could see You, our home, and i our a baby
1: This sub-podcast is number 291, and it's entitled Indiana Wants Me. You've just heard the um, excerpt from Ardeen Taylor's 1970 song, Indiana Wants Me, and it expresses something of what I might call a hermeneutic of self-understanding, which is a big word for simply saying an understanding of who we actually are and what's really going on in human awareness that is almost completely in my perception denied and it is something that is so important and it comes back to haunt you and if I might say it to bite you and so I speak with real uh, passion today to want to try to win your observations or win your craning neck towards that which is seriously important in human affairs and that which is Um, you might say, by the stratagem of the devil, apparently important, but absolutely nothing worth when it comes to the great issue of life, which is reconciliation with God, i.e. reality, i.e. with eternity and ultimacy and connection and love in the largest possible sense. And um, I choose the song, Indiana Wants Me, because I happen to be listening to it on a CD that I bought, thanks to Simeon, at a brilliant and quite unique um, DVD uh, emporium that is sort of, God knows, we hope it'll last another 90 days in Cambridge, England, known as FOP, F as in Foppington, O-P-P, and... um, Mm -hmm. I was listening to this on a, a Top of the Pops BBC collection from the early 70s. I knew the song. And <clears throat> Indiana Wants Me is about a guy who's on, uh, on, the, on, the, f- f- on, on the lamb. He is flying from uh, justice. He's killed a man who apparently insulted his wife. Um, and it's a little along the lines of that song, um, uh, I did it... F- all for Maria, you know. He's 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 at the end of this terrible pursuit, and he's being um, surrounded by the police. And instead of this being a kind of anti-police or um, hectoring thing about conditions and uh, the uh, encircling forces of uh, of power. And all the different ways you can look at it, and justice in some broad sense, it is actually entirely a, um, a a message to his wife whom he will never see again and when I listened to it, I said, "Oh my gosh that 's what it really was all about, and that's what that 's what anybody in the situation remember the hermeneutic of observation you you want to understand people first look around you and look inside yourself and sort of see what actually is going on and don 't make uh, by all means, please avoid narratives. This word narrative is just beyond destructive because it creates a kind of powerful um, false self-righteousness in which you need to sort of put everything that you see into some kind of a story. I, I, it's even my complaint against so-called biblical theology, which is jargon in Reformed circles for a particular form of uh, of the idea of what story is. Yes, there is a biblical story, and the biblical story is the bottom line. But to understand people, to understand yourself, you first have to look at human experience, the, your feelings, your heart. You have to understand where that is. Unfortunately, the New Testament and pars- uh, large parts of the Old Testament it understands this. They look at the human being. Who are we and what do we really want? What, what wakes us up? And so Indiana Wants Me by R. Dean Taylor. Let me, let me read to you the lyrics. Indiana wants me, Lord, I can't go back there. I wish I had you to talk to. And then he says, and it's so cold and lonely here without you. Out there the laws are coming. I'm getting so tired of running. Then he says, "Um, I'll never see your smiling face or touch your hand. If just once more I could see you, our home and our little baby. And then uh, it ends up with him being surrounded and you hear the rat-a-tat of the machine guns. And it is a I used to think it was just a sort of a kind of a public enemy sort of Little Caesars thing, you know, in 1970s dress. It's actually a man's last address to life and it's entirely in the form of a of a conversation. He's even sent her a letter that he doesn't believe she'll ever receive, but he wants to, he apologizes to her, he repents to her of the shame and humiliation that this murder has put her through, even though she didn't do it. She was involved in the thought process and he's uh, embarrassed and he he's seen himself become a fugitive from justice, and he it hurts to see the man that I've become. But the most important thing is he wants her to talk to. He wants to be with her. That is the core. Now, I say this because it it's uh, something that uh, in the um, kind of gravitation towards uh, politics and politics as a religion, and here David Zal's chapter on politics and thoughts on politics and secularity, and David's talks on Mockingbird are so perceptive and so important and so relevant to the current situation where people are attaching so much, almost um ultimate importance to politics and as somehow some form of deliverance. And it's simply not the case. It's simply not true because those people, when they're dying those people who are so this, that, or the other thing on either side of the political equation. That's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about what James Polk, the president of the United States, was thinking about when he died. His last words were to his wife. I forget her name, but he said, whatever her name, Ellie or Maria, whatever it is, um, I just want you to know the only thing that really matters is my love for you and your love for me. And I, I pray with all my heart that I'll see you after I die. There's only one thing that really matters. It's our love. Now, that sounds romantic and extraordinary, but it's absolutely the human condition. Um, let me give you another example of it. It's, it permeates Neville Shute novels, who, who, who is a Christian and has a very strong sense of the, of the uh, crucial uh, anchor of faith in the unseen and ultimately in the Christian God that is within his most of his novels, but In his novel Pastoral from the uh, 1940s in the Blitz, uh, the Battle of Britain, he uh, describes a brilliant uh, bomber pilot, but who is losing, he's running a losing race to... Oh, Tyrone Davis with the girl that he's fallen in love with. She's a, uh, in uniform on the airbase or in Lincolnshire or wherever. She's, his bomber, Lancaster bomber is flying out of. And he's lost the race because she doesn't, for whatever reason, she's very young and she's a little bit undone by his uh, strong and fervent attentions. And she kind of rejects him and everything goes to pot. I mean he becomes a terrible pilot he, he loses all interest he goes up there and endangers his entire crew uh, he, he's completely fed, shut dead in the water and his commanding officer sees it but finally the, things pick up with her and then he's able to actually translate that you might say into a brilliant bombing raid and a brilliant um, performance of acuity and uh, what we today call mindful awareness of the present he becomes what he really always has been a brilliant bomber pilot and does the job in the war and they're reunited with great power and reality because the only thing that matters to these pilots as their officers are frequently heard to say in neville shoots portrayals of their sort of office discussions the wing commanders is that these pilots are entirely their young men and they're not the victims of the sex drive as much as the victims of their drive to connect with a woman and it becomes total and all-encompassing and everything that motivates them and their work performance is directly hinged, anchored to their uh, fortunes in the uh, uh, purpose of a man is to love a woman and the purpose of a woman is to love a man. The game of love, 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 love. Well, that's really important. Now, let me say one other thing. There's a, a movie I've been interested in of late by Robert Parrish from 1954, entitled The Purple Plane. I'd never seen it. It's an English movie, the Gregory Peck actually and a couple of Hollywood actors but it's an English made movie entirely but with a Hollywood director it's a long story it had to do with tax shelters and um, the uh, the g- character is a leading um, bomber pilot this time in Burma fighting in the Burma war in 1943 but he's just heard that his wife and uh, just his wife I think his recently married wife to whom he's been recently married has been killed in the Blitz in London and is dead and his entire higher um, capacity falls completely apart he's the best um, pilot in the squadron and really needed uh, and he has medals galore because of his completed successful missions and it completely falls apart and uh, he um, he actually wants to die so he he pilots his planes in such a way that it's dangerous so he's sort of hoping he might get shot down and killed and his Uh, extraordinarily focused sorrow of losing his young wife uh, way back in England Uh, simply completely uh, enervates him and sucks all the life out of him. And a missionary and a kindly doctor together uh, realize what's really going on. It has nothing to do with narratives or uh, anything to do with rights or wrongs of the war or Um, technical knowledge or a test that he might pass or alcohol. It has everything to do with he has no relationship. He's lost his relationship. He's in an acute place of loss and mourning. And they set him up in a touching way with a young uh, Burmese um, nurse, a young woman who's dear, just great. And it turns out that she herself has lost her family in a Japanese massacre uh, in Rangoon, and she has fled, and her life has been completely and totally savaged by the war. And they meet on the level plane of human sorrow, these two lost souls, the pilot whose wife is dead and the young woman who's fled all her entire life and her family, and everyone she knows is gone and died or murdered or she doesn't know. And on that level plane of human sorrow, they make a connection, and the man begins to come back. And he begins to to have a reason to live and he becomes a brilliant pilot again. And then other things happen. There's a whole other section which, which the fruit of his successful, compassionate, empathetic, deeply loving, uh, powerful self-giving and utterly reconstructing relationship with this young nurse, uh, it brings him to a place of of complete and powerful survival. It's an extraordinary. Extraordinary movie that I had never seen. So many things, you know, you find out. We were so into all this arty stuff. And most of the arty stuff was done by angry young men who were just working out some father thing or mother thing. I identify with that. I can see it. But everybody from Fellini to to, uh, Truffaut, you know... uh, to Roman Polanski. All of these were young, angry men who were very gifted and very talented, but almost all these so-called art house movies that I just grew up on and loved from the time I was 11. It's all I lived for after Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolf Man, and the Mummy, and The Invisible Man and the Phantom of the Opera and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. After those icons, Truffaut and Goddard and uh, Fellini and um, Fassbinder and a later generation, these were all the... But they're they all angry young men. They had nothing to do... They, there was very little real... Um, We might call the the universal sympathy of popular art. That you see in a movie such as the one I'm describing, Purple Plain, And there are many others. There are many, many. Alexander McKendrick, for heaven's sake. Uh, There are many, many others. Um, And so um, you see that uh, so many things you thought were true were basically only one-sided or only partly true and that the real truth is what is uh, revealed in the Purple Plain and in Indiana Wants Me. The real truth is that... Everyone is looking for love, and uh, it, it's sexualized. Yes, of course it is, because complete love for embodied people is going to involve um, the sexual connection. It cannot but, let alone for the purpose of the having children, which is so <laughs> important and so unifying, uh, but uh, it is uh, complete. It's not platonic, nor is it celibate, however, nor is it friendship. It is, a, it is a bond which is physically embodied, but also spiritually and enduringly felt, and finally, emotionally, completely uh, captivating. And this is where the truth of life lies. So when I look at these very, very angry um, American politicians, uh, and it, I see it, to be honest with you, it, I see it a little more on the left because the left is so triumphant. I mean, every the, the left had had control of Harvard College and Harvard Divinity School from the moment I arrived, and long before that, it wasn't. This is nothing new. I'm not speaking out of some boomer reaction. I, I lived it. I lived it in when I first attended college there in Cambridge. I lived it. I saw it. Right in front of me, there was a unanimity of common narrative that was expressed in a somewhat different historical milieu in 1970 or 71 or 75. But it was the same thing. Everybody thought the same about politics, and there was a strong belief that uh, that y- you could save the world through <clears throat> political action and social activism. And it was just as strong in the church and in the it was majority. It was not. It was in the church. It was a significant majority, but not. As large as it was in, say, at Harvard or Harvard Divinity School, where it was 100%. In Harvard College, it was 90, now it's 98%. Uh, And this view that you can be saved, or the world can be saved, or you can save yourself by means of some righteous action is entirely imbalanced. It is not accurate. There's a truth to it, as there always is a truth to many things, but it is fundamentally hinged to the wrong engine. And the engine of life and truth is in the a desire either fulfilled, frustrated, in process, or aspired to, to find an acute, uh, inward, invisible, heart-to-heart connection with one other human being. Um, uh, there's a great scene, I think I've told you about it, in and She and Alan, and a brilliant novel, late, late novel, maybe the 20s, but I think maybe the teens, by um, writer Haggard, in which uh, the um, hero um, Alan Quatermain uh, uh, and a group of um, people come across a village that has been massacred, a, a Zulu village that has been massacred by another tribe. And they're all dead or taken away into slavery. And um, the women and the children and a few of them young men. And um, he, the only living person is an old lady. She's about 75 or 80. And she she's moaning. But Alan Quaterman understands Swahili. And he tries to help her and talk to her. And just as she dies, it's a paragraph I don't have in front of me. It's back in Connecticut but she says um, she says a name and he says with quite an amount of uh, um, I want to say detachment he said and at that point she uttered a name probably the name of someone she had once loved I mean it could have been a son it could have been a mother it could have been a father it could have been a lover it could have been a husband it was probably a some someone who had truly loved her and it's at that point the old lady he, who he's trying to suck her uh, shout, says a name moans uh, sorrowfully a name Of someone, and she dies, and he says, "This is," and it's just such a powerful illustration of the way we are. Because when you're dying, let me underline this. Mary said this very brilliantly in a talk uh, last night at All Saints Winter Park in Winter Park, Florida, the Episcopal Church there. That that when you're that's the key, that's the index is how you feel when you're dying. And and get this straight, by the way, before your mind goes, before you get dementia or um, Alzheimer's. And get it straight now, because you could have a sudden death. And if you die suddenly from a stroke or heart attack, you won't have a chance to get it together. It simply won't be given to you. Your body won't give it to you. Your brain won't give it to you. Do it now. Look at look at the index of what's really important. And this woman, as she is dying, who says the name, she, as writer Haggard, rather offhandedly understands and observes, is closer to the truth of life than anyone. And how much more important it is to see it now. Indiana wants me. All I want to do is someone to talk, is you, all I want is you to talk to. Listen to that again. Go on, listen to the whole song, Um, especially the end. The end is the very, very end. The sound effects are rather primitive, but just so touching. And um, that's all he wants at the end. That's all you're going to want. That's all you're going to want is someone to be there, to hold your hand, someone to, someone to remember, someone to know that you were once loved and you loved and you connected. And that is the meaning of life. And ultimately, it's the meaning of God and it's the meaning of Christ. And it's why we can be forgiven. But Well, I, I lie. why we need to be forgiven because we're often not there. We either didn't get it, blew it, destroyed it, or lost it. If we had it, we have great, great, great cause for thanksgiving. If we lost it we uh, or didn't get it, then we need to have a mighty, absolving God who absolves us for our whole life, our mistakes and our gaps and our losses and our emptinesses and our missings. But he does. And that's what I wanted to say. Um, Indiana wants me. And now we're going to listen to another incredible song that... Um, Uh, uh, that is uh, about a man who um, looks one way but has a completely different inward life and that's you you know, we, we look one way. We look together, or we look a little together, or we try to look together. But underneath there's something, and I want to say one more thing about that. Um, I was with someone I know, um, Mary knows, I should say, uh, ha- has an acute cancer, and recently uh, <clears throat> drove up to another state where there a miracle had happened. There's been a miracle. It has to do with a Bible that has been leaking oil. I don't know if you know about it, but it's sort of a miracle in the sort of furthest str- str- depths of the Bible belt. But it's a very powerful thing. Someone has this Bible that has been kind of giving off kind of holy oil. And whatever you think about that, that's what the word is. And people are trying to get some kind of connection with this holy oil. And this particular chap was able, through an extraordinary turn of events, to, to go up there and, and get some oil from this uh, leaking Bible. This just happened a few weeks ago. And he was healed i mean his 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 disease went into immediate remission, but what was most interesting about it was, as he was there in the presence of this strange, bizarre um, miraculous uh, process or event, he started crying he didn 't he, he 's not a crier he he was completely shocked he just started crying and crying and crying and crying and crying. the real healing agent was the faith of the man, the power of the presence of God in this remarkable sort of talismanic bible and um this jug wasn't in the Bible, and Elijah or something like that, overflowing with oil. And, he, um, and his emotions came forth. It was a catalyst to an extraordinary, breathtaking um, catharsis. And that's really, uh, it all came out. It just came out. It, that was all there. No one knew. No one knew that this man, who's not a young man, had this depth of feeling within him. And he cried and cried and cried, sobbed. This is a true story. I've experienced something like this myself. And then you realize that underneath the surface, there is enormous feeling within people, which is dying to come out. And that's what happened. And that's what life is all about. And it's the dying to come out in the form of a connection, powerful connection, and most importantly, with God. Thank you very much. And now you hear a little little, uh, word on the difference between the outward and the inward. Love you.